Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, and this is Album Clash. I am the one and only Nobody I'd Rather Be. And I am Kev. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep doing it. I've, I've got a list. There's loads. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> okay, so today is the concluding part in our clash between... Uh, Lou Reed's second album from 1972, Transformer, which Kev took us through last week, and Iggy Pop's debut solo album following the breakup of the Stooges, uh, The Idiot, released in 1977. So, Kev, just remind people what it is that connects these albums, please. So, the the main connection between the two is David Bowie. That he had uh, production duties on both these albums, and arguably you can say that both albums either presaged or were basically Bowie's sound at that time. Very, very much so. And it, this week in particular, well, we, we we mentioned Ziggy Stardust lows last week. Uh, this week we'll talk a lot about what, what came after for Bowie. Big low chat. Yes. But before we start going through the idiots, it's time for our newest feature, Video Killed the Radio Star. So this is where we talk about music videos, either things we want to give a shout to, things that we think uh, are good, or things that annoy us. So it's my choice this week, and um, this is very much in the things that annoy us category. So, I mean, before you even introduce it, I have to say that when you when you sent me the message to say that this was your suggestion, I was like, what the fucking hell? Is, what, what is this? Bear with me. Right. The video I want to talk about this week is the video to the 1990 hit by the Divinals, I Touch Myself. I Touch Myself, very famously, was featured on the soundtrack to the first Austin Powers movie back in 97. But I don't want to talk about Austin Powers. It's nothing to do with that. I want to talk about the video in 1990. So a little bit of background as to why I want to talk about this video. So my son is 12, and he's massively into his monster movies, basically. Godzilla in particular. So very recently, Godzilla vs. Kong was released. And my son asked us if we could rent that film for our family movie night last week, which we duly did because he's looked forward to it for a long time. And Christ, oh my, it's like, don't bother. It's awful. Funnily enough, I saw the trailer today. I did think think of your son. And I did think when I saw the trailer, that looks fucking dreadful. It's terrible. There's neon all over the place. It's your classic gargantuan things with fast edits and close-ups, and you can't tell what the fucking hell's going on. It's, oh, God, it was an assault to my eyes and to my ears. And I thought, whilst I was watching this, Christ almighty, those fucking Transformers movies have got a lot to answer for. Which brings us to the video I want to talk about this week. So, Kevin, who directed the Transformers movies? Michael Bay. Yeah, is that who is that who directed Michael it? Bay? And now it all becomes clear. The video for I Touch Myself was directed by the cinephiles Bette Noir Michael Bay. So I like I Touch Myself. I think it's a good song. 
And it is a song about masturbation. And so fair enough, a sexy song like that, and it is a sexy song, it needs a sultry video. Okay, fine. But if you watch this video, so much in it is what would become his signature style. So you've got gratuitous cleavage shots, leering shots of random models wearing lingerie and hot pants, soft focus fashion shoot aesthetic, saturated color schemes, fast cuts. So you've got no idea what's going on. Awful. So I, I believe Mark Kermode, um, who is equally a fan of Michael Bay's work, has referenced him having a pornographer's eye or something yeah. something akin to that. And yeah, like until you said it then, I was not aware it was a Michael Bay, a Michael Bay production. Now, as soon as you said it, it was like, yeah, that makes perfect sense in in how it's shot and everything about it. As you say, the leering, lingering uh, cleavage shot. It's like it's a shite video. Like I don't think we should really speak about it anymore because I fucking hate Michael Bay. Yeah, I hate Michael Bay. So he would go on to direct the equally grotesque cinematic feat that was the video to Meatloaf's I Would Do Anything For Love, But I Won't Do That. Oh, God. And honestly, like, how did anyone think to give this man a job directing Hollywood blockbusters? Yeah, well, I mean... I'd never seen the video before. I will never watch it again. No, 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 exactly. Uh, So the last time on this feature, we wanted to pay tribute to the less famous works of of Spike Jones, someone who we both have a great deal of time for. This week, I wanted to call out Michael Bay for being a pervert. Fuck off, Michael Bay. I hate you. And I believe Megan Fox um, will, well, basically her statements will testify to that. Exactly. Right. So, shall we move on? <laughs> I think we should, away from the pornographer-in-chief. Okay, so um, I guess we should probably start going through The Idiot. Let's get into Iggy. Okay, so The Idiot, Iggy Pop's debut album, released in March of 1977 on RCA Records. It was recorded at Chateau d'Arrouville in France uh, in June and July of 1976, and it was finished at the Musicland studio in Munich. A studio which, what, do you know who owned that studio? I I do not know. Giorgio Moroder. Oh. Yep. Uh, So obviously Moroder worked with Bowie later on, but uh, yeah, we like Moroder. I'm sure we'll talk about him in the future on this show. Was was that studio not also known as Hansa 2? Obviously Hansa 1 being in Berlin. No, Hansa 2 is also in Berlin. uh, And yeah, so some of the... Some of the mixing of the album was performed at Hansa 2, which, so that's not the studio by the wall, but it is still in Berlin. So no, it's it, 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 Hansa and Musicland are different studios. Okay. So there's a lot of background to this album. <laughs> so as Kev said at the start, this album was produced by David Bowie. Iggy Pop met David Bowie in 71. They very quickly became friends. And apparently it was Bowie that convinced Iggy Pop to reform the Stooges. Uh, and Bowie himself mixed the 1973 album Raw Power, which is seen as something of a sort of apogee of, of the Stooges' work, really. It's a fucking brilliant album. I love Raw Power. It's fucking great. Uh, sadly, despite that 
high point musically for the Stooges. They, in 1974, they they broke up once and for all as a result of infighting, but also as a, as a result of Iggy Pop's increasing uh, descent into heroin addiction. And that continued uh, after the band breaking up. Uh, and it led to a period where, well, he, he'd been sleeping on the couch of, of his former bandmate, James Williamson, uh, and actually ended up spending a period on the streets after having been arrested several times for various misdemeanors and drug offenses. He appeared in court and was offered the choice either for going into prison or going into rehab and perhaps obviously chose to go into to rehab. So he was checked into the Neuropsychiatric Institute at uh, UCLA. And, well, um, so it is alleged that after Iggy was involuntarily admitted to the psychiatric ward in 75, now there's some debate about who, certainly Bowie is is one of them. Um, it is alleged that the other one who turned up was Dennis Hopper. Some stories say it was Dean Stockwell. Al from Quantum Leap. <laughs> the story goes that they turned up to the facility both wearing spacesuits and demanded to be let in to see Iggy Pop. The story and Iggy, this is from Iggy's account, this, the starstruck staff let the pair in who then went to see Iggy. They broke out the coke and they all got off their heads. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a story and a half. <laughs> it, it is. There's, there's a quote from Bowie. Uh, this was very much a leave your drugs at the door hospital. What, like unlike all those other, please bring your drugs in and take them freely within our wards, hospitals. <laughs> we were all out of our minds. Yeah, of course. <laughs> he wasn't well. That's all we knew. We thought we should bring him some drugs because he probably hadn't had any for days. Well, that's kind of the point, Dave. <laughs> I mean, he, he's lowered his drug levels. We need to make sure that he's topped them off. <laughs> now, clearly, addiction and substance abuse are not trivial matters. And if anyone is uh, dealing with those issues currently, we urge you to get the help you need. But like, if anything tells you the story of 1970s rock and roll excess, it's this anecdote, surely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you cannot tell the story of, of this album without going into both characters' addiction. Because anyone who's who's seen the um, Alan Yentop cracked actor documentary uh, that was on the uh, BBC about Bowie during the Thin White Duke period, um, and you see he is absolutely off his tits. He is coked up something rotten, and is he looks unwell. Yeah. And funnily enough, like there's a quote from Bowie that, they did try and they did try and do some co- uh, collaborations before uh, the idiot sessions, but Iggy Pop was too unstable, and Bowie, who was coked up and off his off his mind at this time, did like says something like, "I didn't think he would make it." <laughs> so, God knows what state Iggy Pop was in at this time. Exactly. Despite so, that's a, a humorous story, but and as you said, it, it speaks to the fact that both of them were were going through some pretty terrible. Uh, problems with addiction around that time. But Iggy Pop does credit Bowie with helping him overcome his addictions. So he said, by 1975, I was totally into drugs and my willpower had been vastly depleted. But yeah, that's kind of what drugs do. (laughs) But still, I had the brains to commit myself to a hospital, 
or a court told you to, but you know, whichever. (laughs) And I survived with willpower and a lot of help from David Bowie. I survived because I wanted to. So Iggy Pop went on tour uh, with David Bowie on his 1976 tour to promote the album Station to Station. Apparently, whilst he was on that tour, Iggy was basically impressed by the scale of, you know, international big scale tours, but also by David Bowie's work ethic. So again, he was quoted as saying, he never showed bad form. All the shit I know, that's let me take care of myself. Basically, I learned traveling with Bowie. So whilst on the Isolar tour, which was to uh, support Station to Station, the pair were arrested for marijuana possession after the March 76 show (laughs) in Rochester, New York, which is anyone who's seen it knocking about the internet, the famous Bowie uh, mugshot, that's where it's from. Um, So, And Iggy was arrested at the same time. Well, there you go. So it was during that tour that Iggy Pop and David Bowie both decided or one of them suggested that they needed to escape the LA drug culture. So this was something Iggy Pop admitted in an interview with MTV in 1990. They moved to Europe and that's how they ended up at the Chateau d'Arrivi studios. Uh, Right. So as we always do, let's talk a little bit about how we first got introduced to this album. So Kev, when did you first hear The Idiot? I mean, there's a couple of songs off it that are more well-known, so nightclubbing. So we talked about Trainspotting in reference to our first album on this clash. And nightclubbing is, it's in Trainspotting. So that's the first time I heard a song off this album. China Girl, I heard sort of knocking about. But in terms of listening to the album, when I got big into Bowie, the I, I love Station to Station. I think it's a fucking great album. And I'm like, I don't know how, but like after after listening to Station Station, I moved directly onto the idiot. Um, well, you can see why, <laughs> because it's basically moving through Bowie's work. And I got I got big into from Raw Power, I got big into Iggy Pop and I, I wanted to hear what he did next. And obviously with the with the link to to Bowie, then I, I wanted to hear it next. So yeah, that that's how I got into it. All right. So I- I'm going to I'm going to be brutally honest. This is the first time researching this show. It's the first time I've ever heard the whole of this album. Like you, through things like Train Spotting, I was very familiar with certainly nightclubbing, uh, familiar with China Girl, albeit another version of China Girl is perhaps more well known. We'll come on to that. Uh, but yeah, this is the first time I've heard this album all the way through. So uh, you have introduced me to this album through this clash. Cool. All right, so let's start talking about the album art. Um, there's another very famous album involving David Bowie that has similarities to this. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. I can't think of a Bowie album that has a black and white cover with someone doing a pose on, on, on the front. No, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Okay, then in that case, let's move on. <laughs> no. Um, so <laughs> the cover to Heroes and the cover to The Idiot are both inspired by the same painting, a painting called, and uh, 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 please excuse my terrible pronunciation, Roquayrol by German artist Erich Heckel. So David Bowie himself, in terms of his own inspiration, said that Heckel's Roquayrol uh, was a major influence on me as a painter. 
the photograph for the idiot was taken by photographer uh, Andy Kent. It's uh, well, you can see the similarities between that and the cover of Heroes. And if you look at the the painting from Eric Heckel, you can see you can see where they were inspired. The only the thing I've said is it's a rare image of Iggy Pop with his top half covered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and again, the uh, the album which follows this, he he again is wearing a top. Mm. Um, so, um, the only other thing I really want to say, and it's not really related to the to the album cover, the the cover as you as you said is related to a piece of artwork that they were influenced by. Obviously, the name of the album itself is uh, derived from uh, Dostoevsky's The Idiot. Not that they were calling Iggy Pop an idiot; it was uh, derived from from that story. Well, there you go. I didn't know that. Um, that was a piece of information that my extensive research had failed to uncover. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we start going through the tracks? I think I think we should. Right, okay. So we start with Sister Midnight. This was released as a single in February of 1977, and it didn't chart. It was co-written by David Bowie and Carlos Alomar, and apparently they occasionally played it live during the Isola tour to support Station to Station. So apparently the lyrics were improvised by Iggy Pop on the studio floor, uh, something which Bowie thought was incredible and influenced uh, him to do the same when he was recording Heroes. Sister Midnight is a really funny song because obviously the way it was composed certainly lyrically, was hugely, hugely influential on the work that follows The Idiot. But in terms of the sound, the sound is very reminiscent of Young Americans, Station to Station, era Bowie, uh, because Carlos Alomar's guitar work is so important to it. And obviously he, he co-wrote the song. So it, it's kind of like a joiner between the two, the two Bowie periods, really. It's, even though it's an Iggy Pop song, it, it's and I know and I know that Bowie goes on to to cover it, but it yeah it 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 covers the two periods really. Well, that's very interesting because I've said you can really tell that this was the start of the Berlin era. For me, that's what this song sounds. Like. Well, the whole album, as we get on to, but this song starts it off with like Christ. I mean, I don't I don't disagree with you that the album is the start of the of the Berlin period, but it's it's because of Carlos Alomar's guitar. The sounds of stay from. From from pre from previous albums, we talked about in the last album about lineage that there is a link back to previous work, but it is also linking to where he's going to as well. And it's not even his album. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, there are some very interesting lyrical themes in this song. I'm going to read some of the lyrics. It's, you know, I had a dream last night. Mother was in my bed, and I made love to her. Father, he gunned for me, hunted me with his six gun. All right. Aside from the obvious Oedipal references there, is this an homage to The End by The Doors? I, I literally was about to say, like to say the same thing, is that those lyrics, they, they are pulling Jim Morrison in. It is pure The End. Yeah, it is. I really, really like this song. So you talked about Carlos Alomar's guitars, just biting, jagged, the double track vocals with the slight delay on them just penetrate through the heart of this song. It's intimidating. It's dark. There's huge drums driving. It's just brilliant. What a start. Iggy sounds great. On oh it. God, he does. And it's, 
as I'm sure we will we will refer to later on in the album, very industrial, very Teutonic. Yeah. Like whilst it's not recorded in Berlin, it does it does bring that sort of seventies um, Cold War Berlin vibe yeah. to to it. The the coldness of it, I suppose. We'll as you said, we'll come back to that. Right, so we go on to track number two, Night Clubbing. This was recorded at Hansa Studio number one in Berlin, as Kev was suggesting earlier. Um, I mean, the f- the first word I've got is filthy. This song is just dirty, dirty, dirty. A filthy, sexy song. <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> I think the listeners might be starting to think that we're just one fella just putting on different voices. I am Tyler Durden. <laughs> like, it's filthy, as you said. It, oh, wow. I mean, the, the first, like, when you, when you listen to it, and I know this is related to what you know about the background of the album and where it's recorded and what's going on. And obviously there's, there's some great quotes, which I'm sure you'll come out from, from Iggy and that. What it puts me in mind of is... I'm walking around Berlin in the mid-70s. It's dark. It's slightly dangerous. It's a little bit scary, but it's a little bit sexy. It's in the middle of the night. There's neon. All the all these things are going on. And the the sound of that song and the way it's stripped back and the drum machine as well gives it that slightly cold feeling. And oh, it's such a brilliant, it's fucking great. Uh, it, it, right. So I will effuse about the song shortly in similar terms but i'm going to go through some of the facts first so as i said it was recorded at hands of one it was the last track recorded from the out for the album apparently all the musicians had left the sessions so it was well it was almost done as a demo with bowie playing the piano with the drums as kev just said being done on a drum machine bowie had always wanted to re-record it with a proper drum line but iggy pop resisted that disagreed saying uh the drum machine sounded kick-ass and it's better than a drummer He's absolutely right. He was so right. We t- so it's it's a slutty old song, oh, and the yeah. drum machine supports that sluttiness. So apparently Iggy Pop wrote the lyrics on the studio. Again, this is where he written the lyrics on the studio floor. It took him about 10 minutes to write them. After David Bowie had, as you said, suggested uh, he write a song about walking around Berlin in the night like ghosts, a, a lyric which is obviously referenced within the song. Now, when... We did our last clash. I spent a lot of time on whosample.com. I've now got their app. That's how much time I spend on whosample.com. And I was on it again. So this song has been covered loads of times, including by uh, Grace Jones on her album of the same name. I mean, can I just say that, I mean, I adore this, this version by Iggy. Grace Jones's cover is great. It's so good. It is. Uh, I'm not too sure I'd go so far as to say it's better, but it is great. I I didn't say it was better. I just said it's great. It is great. It is great. Uh, It was also covered by the Human League, and uh, I have no interest in hearing that version because um, whilst I love my electronic music, something about Phil Oakey... Nah, sorry, mate. Yeah, for (laughs) a disclaimer for the listeners, Tim absolutely hates Phil Oakey, and I'm not... I'm not 100% sure why, and I don't think he can explain why. He just really hates him for some reason. Yep, I do. And I can't explain why either, but I do. (laughs) So I'm never going to listen to the Human League's version of this. Um, And so this is why I went on Who Sampled, because I'm pretty sure that 
a certain Mr. N. Gallagher nicked this uh, for the dreadful Oasis song Force of Nature from Heathen Chemistry. <sighs> but it's not listed on whosampled.com. So similar to how he basically nicked Mott the Hoople, like maybe maybe he was influenced by... And well, uh, Wikipedia uh, uses the phrase replicated, which I actually think is really, it's the most cutting phrase whilst being factual that you could possibly use. <laughs> uh, yeah, Force of Nature, shit song. Listen to the opening bars. It's the same drum sample. Sorry. Whether, well, whether it's the same sample or whether it's just a copy of it. I don't know, but yeah. You, you you can't get any further away from the utter filth of Cold War era Berlin and Iggy Pop and Bowie doing whatever they got up to in Berlin with that shite indie landfill. Exactly. So away from Oasis and back to the song. So as you said, it was in Trainspotting and that's the first place I heard this song. It's To, to stop using adjectives for a second, there's a repetitive drawling synthesizer sound, which almost sounds like a foghorn through it. And it, that just adds to the sleaziness yeah. <laughs> to, to, to use another adjective. It's, I mean, like we, we haven't used the word, I mean, you used the word slutty before. It, it's so, it's such a sleazy song. It is. I love this. I God, it's wonderful. Iggy, Iggy's drawl like just works yeah. perfectly. Like with yeah. just that slow tempo, and you can imagine like it's the the drum machine works, and that's why it kind of puts you in mind of it. Is that you, it's like a footstep as you're walking mm-hmm. around that area of Berlin that you you may have in mind. Uh, oh, it, yeah. it's so good. It is. And um, before we both ejaculate over our microphones. Uh, I suggest we move on. <laughs> I mean, that would add to the sleaziness. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Track number three is Fun Time. So this is influenced heavily by Krautrock, and in particular by a song called uh, Lilac Angel uh, by the band Neu, which means new in German. Now, it's not a, it's by no stretch a complete ripoff, but I, I listened to, to Leila Engel, and there is definitely an influence there. It's um, it's a furious old song. This. So when I um, wrote my wrote my sort of notes about about it, I think it's very Berlin era Bowie. Um, it, it's evoking their like both of their last days in LA. So talking to Dracula and his crew when obviously they're they're strung strung out on coke and that. Um, th- this song. I think it works so well after nightclubbing because it sounds dirty and evokes the night and danger. The, the 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 slightly filthy sort of walking through the dodgy part of town that you've had with nightclubbing, it's suddenly got dangerous where where you like you've had you're going for a fun time, but it's all got it's all got a little bit a little bit ropey because you're taking the wrong turn. That's a really, really good, a really good way of describing the song. Apparently it's it was almost written as a companion to uh, No Fun, the, the Stooges song. And Iggy Pop got the idea for it after hearing the Sex Pistols do a live cover of No Fun. So I've, I've got a, um Iggy Pop uh, bootleg, which is called Heroin Hates You, which is a live gig he did in 78, 79. Because obviously you, you reference the Sex Pistols cover of No Fun, um, which has Glenn Matlock, 
playing on it as part of Iggy's band. It's really good. Oh yeah, I'm gonna yeah okay. I mean, I'm sure that's not on Spotify. But I think it, I think it, I think it might be. Ooh, I think ooh, it might have been uploaded stuff. now as a proper release. Some slightly more uh, out there covers. REM covered it as a B-side to uh, Get Up, which was from the 1995 album Green. I have no idea what an REM version of this would sound like. Nope. And perhaps even more bizarrely than that, uh, again in 95, for his album Cheapness and Beauty, Boy George covered it. <laughs> wow. I mean, I suppose that links back to Bowie, really, because Boy George, he is he's very open about how how massively influential Bowie was on his entire yeah. career. Yeah, that, that's fair. Back to the song itself. So I'm uh, really interested to hear what you said about the, uh, the the live version with Glenn Matlock playing because the guitar part on this, it is really Glenn Matlock. Yeah. To me, it sounds so Sex Pistols. You, when we were going through Sister Midnight, used the word industrial. This sounds really industrial. There's pounding drums, the driving synth sound. It's oh wow. I really like this. Oh god, it's it's great. And it again, and it is slightly lazy because obviously where it's where it's recorded and everything. Um I have I have mentioned it being quite Teutonic, and obviously you talked about Kraut Rock, it does have that feeling to it as well. Definitely. The only slight negative part is it ends very suddenly. It just stops with a scream, and that's it. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I, I'm okay with songs not go, not hanging around too long, end it quite quickly. In that case, we might have some disagreement in in a few minutes' time. <laughs> right, okay. Shall we move on to the next song? Have we got anything else to say about fun time? No, I'm, I'm okay to move on. All right, next track, Baby. The only real fact I got about this is, so there were two singles released from this album, Sister Midnight, which I mentioned earlier, and China Girl. This was the B-side to both of those. And sorry, that's just laziness. I know you're getting over a smack addiction, but come on, at least recall one more song. Or just put something else from the album. Exactly. Anyway, I thought he was impressed by Bowie's work ethic on the Station to Station tour. Yeah, he was impressed by it. He didn't want to replicate it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, It's about a relationship ending. So, you know, just one of the lyrics I've said, Baby, don't you cry. I've already cried. We're walking down the street of chance. The chances are always slim or none, and the intention's unjust. Given that that subject matter, I think Iggy Pop sounds great singing it in that wailing, drawling style that he has. Yeah, it, it's incredibly kraut rock. It follows on really nicely from the last song. Again, it's like it's dirty. The way the Iggy Iggy's way of singing is frankly filthy. Like he can't help but just sound a bit dirty. As, and he's a, he's very erotic. <laughs> sometimes sometimes it's eroticism and sometimes it's dirty as in could probably do with like a good wash yeah so i've grubby grubby yeah in the same way that jarvis cocker on his and hers and different class it's really filthy grubby lyrics but it's sexy this is a sexy album you that may not be the immediate word that comes to mind when you're listening to an industrial Krautrock influenced Bowie produced album, but it's sexy as hell. This album, yeah, it. I mean, like that kind of plaintive baby that that he sort of cries out. It's it's sort of slightly pleading. 
it's it, this is really good, and I I really like the the subtle guitar track to it as well. Yeah, it doesn't need it doesn't need to be huge in the mix, but it's there and it it keeps going. It, yeah, it's a really good song. It is. Uh, so and and as I said last week when we were going through Satellite of Love in particular, I said it's a fairly simple song, but what David Bowie's production does is it elevates it to something more spectacular and more epic. I think this is similar. Once again, the vocals being double tracked with the reverb added to it just lets the lyrics come through, lets the vocals come through, you know, and shine. The, the production is fantastic throughout this album again. And the the thing is as well, uh, there are some more famous songs in it, but like particularly after listening to For This Clash, one of the songs that stuck with me the most was Baby. And it's that chorus line. Really, it really sticks with you. Yeah. Really good. Oh, the only other thing I want to say, uh, apparently it was covered in 2009 by Joan as Policewoman. And again, you hear Joan as Policewoman, you can think, yeah, all right, I can hear that sound working. I, I would like to hear that. Yeah, I would, I would be interested. All right, should we go to China Girl? I think we should. Okay, so uh, as I mentioned when we were going through Baby, this was also released as a single, but again, it failed to chart. How how does this fail to chart? Exactly. I mean, right, I, I apologise if I'm going to steal your thunder. No, no, you go. Obviously, the um, Nile Rodgers produced version was incredibly successful. This is better. This is so much better. And I've always, I've always liked this version more because it's it's harder. It's it's not as twee as the as the Bowie version, and particularly when you understand the background of the song and where it's come from, and the, the fact that he improvised most lyrics while standing mm-hmm. at the mic. Yep. I mean, it, like understanding that is fucking phenomenal piece of work, and it's great. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll stop. I I will hold back so to allow you to at least say something on this. I'm going to say I hate the version that appears on Let's Dance that's produced by Nile Rodgers. I really like Nile Rodgers. I really like David Bowie. I'm going to say it now, and this is a spoiler for if we ever go through Let's Dance. For me, when Nile Rodgers and David Bowie come together, the results weren't good. Don't like that album at all. I, I will I will disagree with you, but like that's but that's a different that's a whole different debate. It's a different yeah, it is. Um I agree with you. This is great. And it's completely different to the version that people will be more familiar with. It's right. So before I wax lyrical on the song, it's gotta be about drugs this, surely. No, so the actual song it so from my research the it, it's inspired by Iggy's unrequited love for Kulin and Goyen, who was staying at the chateau at the time. So the shush, so shush, uh, just you shut your mouth, was apparently after Iggy had confessed his feelings one night, and she was just going, Shh, "Just shut your fucking mouth, lad." And yet, the, he he improvised most of the lyrics from this after after that incident. So all right, fair enough. If, all right, okay. I just so for me lyrics like I couldn't escape this feeling with my China girl. I feel a wreck without my little China girl. That's what he says. Fine. Who am I to disagree? Uh, I stand corrected. I mean, you could you can definitely read it as a drug song though as well. Like without without question because and obviously the the link between um, opium, China and every everything like that and Iggy Iggy's background. So easily you can read it as a drug parable. Well, that's what I thought, but all right. No, okay. Uh, I, I will take Iggy at his word. Um, once again, 
really jagged guitars, really huge drums. And again, David Bowie knows exactly what to do with his production to let Iggy Pop's vocals really just burst through the song. It's it's great. It's dark. It's fierce. Uh, I really like it. It's brilliant. I mean, as I, as I say, it's it's much more raw and dirtier than than the uh, Nile Rodgers clean uh, poppy poppy version. I th- Shit version. I think I think what you can also say in terms of the the guitars on this as well. So my understanding, and I could I could well be wrong, is that Bowie initially wanted uh, Robert Fripp of King Crimson to to play on to play on it. Obviously, we know Robert Fripp eventually did work with Bowie on Heroes, and you can you can hear that there is a clear lineage in the way the guitar the guitar is played between this song and Heroes as well. So, for the second time in uh, this clash, I didn't know that. <laughs> did, did you know? Okay, nope. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, as as I say, these are these are two albums that I definitely know very well. And this is the first half of this album. Like you've got Sister Midnight, you've got Nightclub, and you've got Fun Time, you've got Baby, you've got China Girl. Fuck me, that's that's a first half. It is, and there is a lot more to come. Yeah. Uh, with that, shall we go on to side two? I think we should, because I mean, I could we could just continue to saying how great this version is, because it is it's really good. So, Dum Dum Boys. This is basically the story of the Stooges. Mm-hmm. So to quote Iggy Pop himself, I only had a few notes on the piano. I couldn't quite finish the tune. Bowie said, don't you think we could make a song with that? Why don't you tell the story of the Stooges? He gave me the concept of the song and he gave me the title. Although according to the Bowie Songs blog, Bowie actually suggested Dum Dum Days, not Dum Dum Boys. But anyway, so there's, there's a sort of spoken word intro to the song and actually name checks each of the members of the Stooges. It seems to be at the same time a celebration of the band and his time within the band and what it gave to him, but also a lament of their demise and the fact that at his lowest ebb, uh, he misses them. So again, to quote the lyrics, now I'm looking for the Dum Dum Boys. Where are you now when I need your noise? Now I'm looking for the Dum Dum Boys. The walls close in and I need some noise. So yeah, it's um, quite poignant actually if you if you if you read the lyrics. Yeah, I, I mean it it is a tribute to the story and the history of the Stooges. And as you say, the, the spoken intro references all the other band members and where they are at, the, at this time. And it is it's it's a lament for the loss of of his band really. It's, I really, again, I really like it. It's, I suppose, of the songs on this album, China Girl is probably the most poppy of the songs. This is the most traditional in Iggy style than anything else on the album. Yeah, uh, that's what what I would say about this. I, I agree. So despite the poignancy of the lyrics, well, again, I've written, it's, it's utter filth. Yeah. It's, grimy it's unashamedly grimy and grubby and di- oh my god that that wah wah guitar riff that the piano the, oh my god just seven minutes 13 seconds isn't long enough for me i absolutely love this song so i really do i actually noted it down that i really really like it although possibly it's a bit long so that, like, 
that's how I came down on it. Okay, I can see that. And, and this definitely speaks to our different preferences. If I had to offer one criticism of this, it's that within that seven minutes, 13 seconds, there isn't a great deal of variety in there. It's the same first chorus, first chorus structure over the duration. And if you're not into songs of that length, if that's not the sort of sound you're into it for, and I'm not, but I really do not mean this as a criticism at all. It's about preferences. If that's not what you're in it for, I can understand you getting sort of four minutes in and going, we're still going, Christ. But that's not me. I love it. It's brilliant. More, please. I don't think it. I don't think it's it's bad for for its length, but I suppose that's that's the aesthetic that, as as we as we talked about on our previous weeks, um, can't get you out of my head. You took you referenced a, a song that a, a band that yeah was a garage two was a garage songs, band. Yeah. It's two yeah, minute exactly. song, and I went yeah, I I like that kind of thing. And I I said said earlier when we were talking about I love raw power and that's not a long album. I mean, this isn't a particularly long album, but that's not a long album at all. No. So, yeah, it's it's personal preference. Like exactly, it's it's, it's not it's not bad though. It's that long. I it could have been a little shorter for me. That's all. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so next up is Tiny Girls. So this is a song about Iggy being in a relationship, having relationship problems, and wanting a simpler life. With well, I'll I'll quote the lyric. So you turn around toward the tiny girls who've got no tricks, who've got no past. Now, there are some very, very unsettling undertones to this song, particularly given Iggy Pop's history. So in 1970, when Iggy Pop was 23, he, well, I would say allegedly, but he sung about it in a song. So he did have a sexual relationship with a girl who at the time was 13, 13 years old. Fuck. I, I was not aware of this. Oh, God. So you might be aware of the name of, of the famous groupie Sable Star, who was around the LA scene in the early 70s. Before she turned 16, she also claimed to have had sexual relationships with Rod Stewart, Alice Cooper, Mark Bolan, and David Bowie. And as I said, Iggy Pop even sung about this in his 1996 song, Look Away. And th- this isn't a vague reference. This is, I'm just, again, I'll quote the lyrics. I slept with Sable when she was 13. Her parents were too rich to do anything. She rocked her way around LA till a New York doll carried her away. So that last line there about the New York doll refers to Johnny Thunders uh, of the New York Dolls who moved to New York uh, with Sable Star when she was 16 years of age. And I'm not going to go into the details of it, but that relationship did not end very well. So uh, I'm sorry, 13, fuck off. Yeah, I can't I can't disagree with, with anything that you're saying. Fuck off. That, that's, that's disgraceful. And is also statutory rape. Well, exactly. So... Sadly, there will be people, and there will certainly have been people at this time in the early 70s that would have said, well, she was consensual, she was groupish, she was instigating it. doesn't fucking matter. She's 13 years old. That's why statutory rape is a thing. Sorry. And again, you know, this week's terrible individual 
is unfortunately Iggy Pop because, well, and allegedly David Bowie from what Sable Star herself claimed. It's just fucking sick. Yeah, I, we, I mean, there is, there is nothing more that you need to say about it. There, that's fucking horrific. I'm sorry for that. Again, that's this week's soapbox over with. In terms of the song, it certainly evokes a sort of doo-wop style lovesick ballad from the 50s and 60s. There's a sultriness to it, which, given the subject matter, I find quite distasteful, to be honest with you. But, you know, that's the style of the album, I guess. So that's me anyway. I mean, for for me, the so I wasn't aware of, of that background, which gives it an, an entirely different context. I, I think for me, when when listening to it and from listening to the album previously, I've always felt that it seems weird on the album. It doesn't it doesn't fit. It like it seems like it's been transported in from another album, just dropped yeah. in. I don't I, I mean I've never particularly disliked it. I mean I, I now have some some greater reservations. So it just doesn't fit at all. It it as I say, it seems like it's from someone else's album and has been dropped in. Yeah, I, I can't disagree there. I've made my views on this song and its subject very clear. It's, uh, musically, it's not great, but it doesn't stay around too long at three minutes. So I, I'd like to move on if that's all right. Yeah, I think, I think I'm happy to move on. Okay, so we end with mass production. The song itself, it refers to effectively the decaying industrial infrastructure uh, from the places of Iggy Pop's youth. It was apparently a lyric suggested by David Bowie. Um, so Iggy Pop is quoted as saying, I would always talk to Bowie about how much I admired the beauty of the American industrial culture that was rotting away where I grew up. Like the beautiful smokestacks and factories, whole cities devoted to factories. I mean, we, we promised the listeners some big Henry Ford chat earlier on, so... Um... Uh, th- this is this is obviously what what you were referring to because yeah i mean the the song itself is very reminiscent of a detroit production line apparently inspired by or uh, memories from um Iggy pop of a visit to the ford factory in detroit where he saw the production line yeah that that's one of the things that inspired the song so and I mean, uh, James Osterberg obviously is, well, if, if you're not aware, that's Iggy Pop's real name. He was from Ann Arbor, which is, uh, which is quite close to, to Detroit, I, I'm led to believe. So onto the, onto the song itself, the opening minute, well, I'm, uh, to be fair, I, and in fact, the, the, the bed of the overall song is a sort of series of well, what's been called overloaded industrial noises. Recorded by the well, the owner of the Chateau Studio, Logan, and the bassist on the album, Logan Thibault. And uh, he sort of recorded these sounds, spliced them together, and that creates the sort of industrial sound that underpins this whole eight minutes plus song. I mean, and you can you can see how this song, more so than anything else on the album influences people like Nine Inch Nails um, and you know the, there's there's the influence on on the likes of Joy Division as well I mean I'm led to believe that this album was the last album that Ian Curtis listened to before his suicide <sighs> and that concludes the legacy section for this week's album <laughs> <laughs> no you're right it, exactly that yeah it's a funny old song that like 
it grabs me and loses me. It's I think I think it loses me when it as it becomes a little more discordant. Oh my god! That you, oh god! You're so wrong. That's <laughs> so. I have written. I'm gonna. Can I? Can I quote? Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, sure, sure. And this is proof that we are different people. Actually, what a way to end the album! Wow, the off-key synths at the end are just the perfect complement to the industrial gritty sound of the song. I mean, what what I can what I can certainly say that the the repetitive beat to it, the the way the the way the song is structured, is so reminiscent of a mass production line. Like, even if you listen to this and you absolutely hate it, in terms of a a musical evocation of a line at fault, they they have fucking nailed that. Like, just in in the way it's put together. Yeah, they absolutely have. So. It, that sound uh, is redolent of the machine uh, from "Wish You Were Here" by Pink Floyd. Yeah, uh, which which was ex- in exactly the same mold of trying to create that that mechanistic sound of a, of a production line. Well, again, I've said here we we called it out on Sister Midnight. I think the same is true here, given the, the repetitive guitar riff, the bass line, the wailing vocals. It's another call to the end. Surely the doors are, you know, it's it's all over it. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that even if you're, if even if you're just evoking Jim Morrison's presence and the way he sort of performed, that I mean, Iggy, Iggy himself, where like, so he talk, he talks about when they formed the Stooges, that one of the most important things that influenced him and how he performed was he went to see the doors. So you can you can see the yeah. the importance of Jim Morrison, and obviously Iggy wears barely more clothes than Jim Morrison. But like it's it's I mean we're talking barely, you know. I love mass production. I think it's a phenomenal way to end this album. My interpretation of what the song is about it seems to be about someone realizing that everything and everyone uh, is the product of a disposable mass production culture and that comes through in lyrics like give me a number of a girl almost like you i'm buried deep in mass production you're nothing new and i I suppose that given how iggy had been uh, chewed up by the by the um, music industry and sort of spat out by it and had recovered from it and was able to reflect on it. The, I suppose that's redolent of 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 what he'd experienced. Yeah, uh, love it. Great. More, please. <laughs> uh, genuinely, eight tracks. I'd love some more of this. Uh, it's 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 gone by. Both of these albums, you've got thirty eight minutes. This one's thirty nine minutes. Really short, but I'd more than happily listen to some more of uh, David Bowie and Iggy Pop giving me some industrial kraut rock infused uh, punk yeah so as i as i believe is now customary take note noel gallagher <laughs> well you say take note noel gallagher the of the second side of this album you've got one 7 plus minute song and one 8 plus minute song yeah. so but it's not a long album. Like, okay, no, there's there's two there's two long songs on there. The rest of the album is not long. Yeah, but 
it's definitely maybe it's not a long album either. Morning Glory is not that long an album either. It's just, Be Here Now, which we've been through, clearly is. But even, even at their most coked out, they didn't produce something <laughs> as bloated okay. as that. Right, fair enough. Now you've got me there. That uh, <laughs> Yeah, this is what cocaine can Station to Station is a really good album, and it's not long. All right, fair enough. Point taken. So that is the end of The Idiot. Shall I take us through what I generally refer to as the legacy? Yes, okay. So in terms of the numbers, it's been really difficult. Well, not really difficult. It's been impossible. I've not been able to find any exact figures for sales of this album. In terms of its charting, it reached number 30 in the UK album chart. It actually only spent three weeks on the UK album chart, and it reached number 72 on the US Billboard chart. So not a phenomenal commercial success. And as I say, I can't find any sales figures for it. So, I mean, not uh, again, I always end up pulling back the production case. And like we did, we did send messages to each other. And like, obviously, you said that this was the first time you kind of listened to the album in full. And it's a funny thing with The Idiot is that it's a known album, but not well known album, if you, if you know what I mean. Uh, well, I, I do. That's what I said when we were going through how we got introduced to it. A few of the tracks I was very familiar with, but I'd never heard the album before. In terms of its critical reception, John uh, Swenson in Rolling Stone, he praised it, saying that it was the most savage indictment of rock posturing ever recorded, which I think puts it pretty nicely, to be honest. Yeah. Melody Maker, uh, their journalist Alan Jones, he very similarly, he said it was a disturbingly pertinent expression of modern music. Again, puts it really well. What did come through a lot within reviews, both sort of positive and negative, is people were very sort of taken aback by the musical style. So, for example, Chris Needs from Zigzag said that it was a very strange, morbid, obscure and unsettling album and that it chilled him to the marrow, which is a really macabre way of putting it. I can understand that because it's not a Stooges album at all. It's a Bowie album, really. um, and Bowie of this of this era. But it's it's definitely not of of what's gone before. And if you like that garage that garage sound that the Stooges had come, and particularly if you'd listen to Raw Power, this must have gone. What the fuck? Has it, like, what's going on here? Yeah, I agree. What I'll say is, so you what seventy seven, early seventy seven here. So Low has just come out. We'll go on to that in a moment. This follows on. This is a very, very different sound for people to get their heads around. And yes, okay, Low has become successful, but this is only two months after Low. The single to promote Low was Sound and Vision. Great song, but it is not representative of the sound of Low. No. So people hear, oh, it's a Bowie-produced album. I'm going to stick this on. Christ, what am I listening to here? It's like the devil is speaking to me through my record. <laughs> That's an exaggeration, clearly. But yeah, this is very, very different. Well, I mean, as as we said, like in terms of the, the first side of the album, is that it brings the dark, dangerous night feeling. They, they, that would unsettle people. Yeah. They weren't expecting it. But the, I, I think what we all really want to know is what did Nobby McGee have to say? 
So, not much for us to get our teeth into. Disappointing. Yeah. So he gave this an A-. And he said, the line on Iggy is that this comeback album with Bowie and friends proves his creative power has dissipated. I say bullshit. Again, for the second week in a row, sadly, I have got to agree with our friend, Mr. Chris Gow there. I am going to I'm going to disagree with him to to some extent. I'm going to disagree with him. Go on. It's arguable. And I know that other people have made this argument and probably much more in much more lyrical detail that this is this is not it. This is, is a Bowie album that Iggy Pop sings on. And really, the the first Iggy Pop solo record is Lust for Life. And that's where he comes through far more, even though obviously we've talked about the the importance and how he came up lyrically. The sound the sound of it is not his sound, and that, that comes through in the next album. Well, okay. We we'll get on to that bit a bit more, but I think we can both agree there's nothing hugely controversial in what uh, Robert Christgau has said there. He certainly hasn't referred to nonsense. <laughs> no, I can't, I can't, I can't like absolutely lay into him for referring to, to, to someone as a nonce. I mean, it's unfortunate really, because if there's an album where he should be referring to nonsense, <laughs> as we've discussed. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, as you said, you stole my thunder. This is basically seen as a Bowie album. Now, <laughs> There's an interesting fact here to go through. So, this album, The Idiot, was finished in August of 76. Bowie didn't start recording low until September of 76. So, this album was finished and ready to go before Lowe had even started recording. Lowe was released in January of 77. The Idiot didn't come until March of 77. It has been, well, in fact, it was suggested by Lauren Tebow, in fact, that David Bowie didn't want people to think that he'd been inspired by Iggy's album, when in fact it was all the same thing. So he made sure that Lowe was released before The Idiot. Um, th- there, is a, there is a quote from, from Bowie, which essentially... <sighs> Whilst doesn't necessarily back that up, it certainly says that he was working out his ideas when when working on this. So the quote goes, poor Jim, in a way he became a guinea pig for what I wanted to do with sound. I didn't have the material of the time and I didn't feel like writing. I felt much more like laying back and getting behind someone else's work. So that album was opportune creatively. Essentially used, used Iggy to work out his ideas and then implemented them in low to give him some credit against the wishes of rca executives rather than going on a promotional tour for low he actually elected to support iggy and he played keyboards yeah. on the tour to promote the idiot so fair enough yeah he and he he, he he continued to support iggy obviously going into into the next album whilst the his the influence of his sound wasn't as prevalent as it is in this album, that he did, like as you say, like Low was a massive album that he he didn't tour in order to support Iggy's work. So you know, fair, fair play. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as we said in last week's show, when Lou Reed released his eponymously titled debut album, 
in 72. And then later that year came out with Transformer. Uh, Lust for Life came out later in 77. So clearly um, striking while the iron was hot was something that was uh, very much in the RCA business plan within the 70s. To talk about influence of the album. So you, as you've already mentioned, clearly you, you listen to Unknown Pleasures uh, from Joy Division and you can hear the influence of, of this album. But like you said, when uh, Ian Curtis, who for people who don't know is Joy Division's front man, he committed suicide in 1980 on the eve of them going on a, on a, uh, a tour of America. And when his body was discovered uh, on his turntable, this album was found to have been playing. So there's clearly a, an influence there. And, and obviously that's a very tragic story and uh, believe me we'll come back to joy division in later episodes so please don't think about short shrift here there uh, but other acts you already mentioned nine inch nails i mean god trent reznor clearly pays a lot of reference to this album i i believe there is a trent reznor version of nightclub in as well oh okay i haven't heard that but i think perhaps the most important part of the album's legacy and we started this episode by making by making light of a of a story about Iggy Pop's drug addiction and I think it's worth bringing that to a conclusion in a, in a nicer way let's just say so it, it really did help him get clean an interview that Iggy Pop did it well shortly after David Bowie's death actually in January of 2016 he tells a story of when when he took David Bowie to meet his parents uh, in, in Detroit so what he said was he came to my parents trailer and the neighbors were so frightened of the car and the bodyguard that they called the police my father is a very wonderful man and he said thank you for what you're doing for my son I thought shut up dad you're making me look uncool <laughs> in the same interview he said he resurrected me of Bowie he resurrected me he was more of a benefactor than a friend in the way most people think of friendship. He went a bit out of his way to bestow some good karma on me. And given what we were talking about, how he was clearly struggling with, and Bowie himself was struggling with addiction uh, at the time when this album was made, I think that's it, it's, a, it's a good news story that he managed to get clean. And I think, I mean, we, we've talked about it sort of throughout, is that the most obvious clear legacy that this that this album has is not is obviously Iggy Pop cleaning his act up. It's also Bowie cleaning his act up. And really, without the idiot, there is no heroes. That album would not exist. Because had they not to come to Europe for the to get clean and and then started the recording and started the pro the, the Berlin trilogy. Bowie probably wouldn't have survived um, the amount of coke he was taking at the time. And yeah, the, the the development in his sound and how influential that was, this all started and commenced with The Idiot. Absolutely. And um, I just wanted to end on that note because it's 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 a nice story. Yeah, it's a, po it's a positive. Yeah, it is. So I guess all that's left for us to do before we go into the scoring is best song, worst song. So... Yeah, Kev, what do you reckon? So my so I will start with my worst song. All right. Because I like to I like to go negative then positive, or at least try to. 
So the worst song for me is Tiny Girls. I mean, I I wasn't, before we started talking about it, I wasn't aware of the wider context of that song. But in terms of just listening to the song itself, it doesn't fit. Like, I've... I've never, I've never liked it really. I mean, it's yeah, it's 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 not a song that's ever grabbed me and uh, ever really pulled me in. I, d- I don't know whose album it's from, but it's not from this. It's a B side. And your favourite song? What's the best song? It's it's a toughy one uh, to pick, but really, if I if I'm truly honest, it's nightclubbing. It's sumptuous. It's filthy. Like I, I, when I listen to it, I feel like I kind of need a wash because I've I've been I've been in so many dives um, whilst listening to it. The bit like me trainers are, are stuck to the floor. Like, yeah, it it's brilliantly evocative. And in like the thing is, is that it does all that in such a. Sh- it doesn't need like. And this is not to have a pop at mass production of Dum Dum Boys. It's not. It's not even a long song, but it it manages to create such an atmosphere in such a short space of time. It's it is a phenomenal piece of work. Okay, uh, so once again, we fail to have any uh, clash. Worst song is definitely Tiny Girls. So I agree, it's out of place. But for me, that much more strongly is the is the undertones of the song and what it represents in terms of Iggy Pop's history. And nightclubbing is the best song. It was a really tough choice for me, though. I would give honourable mentions to both Dum Dum Boys and Mass Production, which I adore, both of them, and I love the length of both of them. But exactly as you said, for the sultriness, for the grubbiness, nightclubbing is wonderful. Best song on the album. So, given that this was my choice for The Clash, I will do my scoring second. First, we will score uh, the one that I led us through, which was Transformer by Lou Reed. So, Tim, if you would like to to commence. Okay. I like Transformer. I like it a lot. But after Satellite of Love, it definitely tails off. So, as, as we said earlier, 38 minutes. It's a short old album. But given the way it ends... It doesn't leave me wanting more. The high points are glorious. Perfect day. Satellite of love. Vicious. Walk on the wild side. They're fantastic songs. They are. They're brilliant. But I'm afraid the low points, for me, drag it down somewhat. Clearly, it doesn't deserve the vitriol that the Rolling Stone review bestowed upon it, and, and certainly the horrific language that's used within that. But I do agree with what they say and with what, our good friend Robert Criscal says at times it is a little bit too knowingly self-referential and that does irritate me. Uh, the New York Telephone Conversation is just an annoying song. Uh, it, it is. <sighs> Something we said last week, I, 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 and it is largely positive, it is. The number of changes of sound, of changes of pace, of changes of pitch. But I just, when you take a step back and consider the album as a whole, is it a bit too chameleonic? I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I like it. It's a good album. It could be a great album, but it's not. Six and a half out of ten. What? What? Six and a half. It's more than I gave Layla. Six and a half. Fucking hell. <laughs> Six and a half out of ten. Okay. What about you? 
I'm guessing more than six and a half. Yes, it's more than six and a half. So for me, I think this is a great album. I I really enjoy this album. If I if I put aside New York Telephone conversation, which I don't like, but it doesn't stay too long, is that I enjoy the rest of this album. I think it's great. I I don't deny that the first half is far better than the second half. However, there's only one song I really dislike on it, and I think the high points are so high. The first the first half of the album is you know it's it's phenomenal the, the, there isn't a bad moment on it i think the changes in tone the the changes in sound it, it's a, it's a fanta- it's a fantastic album i i accept some of the criticism that that you've made so for me i'm going to come down on it with a seven and a half i i i expected you to score it higher do you see what i say about there are so many changes of pace, changes of direction that it's a bit disjointed. I, I, I do, I do see that point, and that's why I. So it, it's a, it's a funny thing because we praised all things must pass for the fact that there was there were changes in tone and the and the sound. However, with it being a longer album, that there were the changes weren't as dramatic. Um, so I, I accept I accept that, point, and that's why I haven't scored it as highly as I did that album. I don't think it's a perfect album, but I think the, there are such great high points in it. I, personally, I think you've you've been a bit harsh in your scoring. Okay, fair enough. I, 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 there is jeopardy now. There is some there's some real tension um, that you could cut with. I mean, not a very sharp knife, <laughs> but you know, a butter knife maybe. Oh, I, I mean, like a, a butter knife is better than like a plastic knife from like a, a wimpy. <laughs> Come on, we 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 got to bring this to an end. We we've got to score the idiot. Okay. All right. I went first on Transformer, so you got to go first now. Where are you going on the idiot? It's tough. Again, the first half of this album is phenomenal as a collection, as a theme, as a bringing a a time and place together. It's that first half of the album is is a brilliant collection of songs and really makes me think of seventies Germany as as we've as we've said we said throughout. The second half of the album has three songs, one of which we don't particularly like and shouldn't be on the album. But it has Dum Dum Boys, which I really like. Mass Production, I, as I say, it's a song that I I find difficult because there are bits of it that I like and there are bits of it that I don't like and I'm not quite sure where I come down on it. As a collection, I would say, for me, it is equal to Transformer, so I will come down on it as seven and a half. It is... I think both albums are great, but they there are there are slight flaws to them, so that's why I'm, I'm scoring it there. So that so for me they are level. Okay, it's down it's down to you. Okay, well, all right. This was an easy choice for me this week. Sorry, it was. I'd never listened to this album in full until you asked me to research it for this show. Why have I not listened to this album before? Oh my God, it's incredible. I love it. It's sexy. It's filthy. It's dark. It's brilliant. 
It is. I love the two long tracks on the second side of this album. They both add different things. Mass production grows in its discordancy to create a sense of dystopia, of dissatisfaction, of whatever you want. It just it fits the theme of the album perfectly. I'm going to dock it a point for the extremely distasteful Tiny Girls. I am. As, as, we, as we've discussed before, the knobhead tax. Yeah, it's exactly, exactly. I love The Idiot. It deserves recognition for how innovative and influential it was as an album. And that is as much down to David Bowie, if not more so than Iggy Pop. I'm going on. This is a glorious album. I love it. Even with the knobhead tax, I'm giving this 8 out of 10. And I'm, t- I'm telling you now, if it hadn't been for Tiny Girls, this would have been competing with me for a 9. I fucking love this album. 8 out of 10. It, it is It is a great album. I mean, for, for, for me, I mean, obviously we know what the, the winner is. I, I, really, I really like both albums. I think they both have flaws to them, but I really like both of them. So, so I, ca- I can't split them, but I've known them for longer. And, 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 all right, I am generally a harsher scorer than you. You gave Clapton seven, despite his, well, you know, Clapton-ness. <laughs> <laughs> so six and a half for Transformer is, I like it. I do really like it. I think I think six and a half is harsh. Well, that's your opinion. That's your opinion. I've got mine. Look, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and bully you into um, extra points because because you're wrong. Like as as happened last week. Because I'm not wrong. No, I'm sorry. Six and six 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 and a half is for Transformer. Like the first half of the album is fucking great. Like how are you? It is, but the second half isn't. Satellite of Love. It's the best song on the second. It's the best song on the album. It's the only great song on the second half of that. Uh, You're not going to change my mind. No, like, well, because because I'm not going to um, subject you to workplace bullying because I am the better person. <laughs> uh, it's probably emphatically true, but there you go. <laughs> Being serious about it, the sound of the idiot is much closer to what I respond to in music. And as I said, when I listened to it for the first time all the way through, in the last seven days, I thought, fucking hell, what have I missed? I love it. Thank you for introducing me to it. It's brilliant. Eight out of ten, it's the winner this week. It is. It is the winner this week. And any album that has nightclubbing on it is a worthy winner. That's what, that's what I'll say. I, I love both these albums, so I'm, I don't have a problem with either one particularly winning. No, fair enough. And you, as you said, you have more history with both of them than I do. Well, I can't say anymore. The only thing I'd say is, despite my high score, sleeping with 13-year-olds is fucking despicable. You should be ashamed of yourself. Yes, you should, Iggy. Okay, so enough of this petty arguing. Uh, for the second week in a row, uh, I've got what I wanted, so sound. <laughs> well, um, we, we have had some kind of clash. We have, we have, uh, uh, and that's, that's great. Well done, actually. Really good clash. We're, when you announced it a couple of weeks ago, I wasn't hugely familiar with either album, so I was possibly a little bit trepidatious, but, you know, if I was wearing a cap now, I would doff it to you because it's been a really, really good clash. Well done. Cool, thanks. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. So I've had a good old think about this, and there's been a, a lot going on culturally, politically, over the past nine months, 12 months around civil rights, 
racial discrimination, uh, institutional racism, whatever you want to call it, it's very much in the news and rightfully so. I'm going to say that now, rightfully so. So I wanted to do something which incorporated that. And, you know, clearly, who better to talk about civil rights and racial discrimination than two middle-aged, middle-class English white fellas? <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to bring a bit of that. As much as, as I've said, we're not going to be, well, we probably are a bit soapboxy, aren't we, really? But I mean, we, we're not going to be able, we're, we're not trying to be pathetic particularly party political about stuff and we're yeah. we're gonna try we're gonna try and avoid that but when you're talking about any kind of thing and particularly if it's referring referencing society as it may be or may have been is that your own personal viewpoint on how that was and how and the legacy of that is going to come through so we make no apologies for calling shit out when we see it couldn't agree more with that perfectly put so with that in mind for our next clash I am going to take us in a little bit of a different direction, musically and temporally. Uh, we're going to take our first trip to the 1980s, a decade we have yet to visit. Okay. 1988, to be specific. I think I know where this is going. We are going to go through two of the most influential hip-hop albums of all time. We are going to do... Public enemies, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. And we're going to pit that against NWA's Straight Outta Compton. <laughs> Me and Tim do not, do not compare our list of potential clashes. This was definitely on my list. Good. Yeah, it's... With, and I'm not meaning to damn you with faint praise at all. It's an obvious clash and it's an important clash. It is an important clash. Uh, there's a lot for us to get into. Sadly, we will need to speak about some fairly despicable behaviour by people involved in the recording of both albums. But we will also need to speak about how much they advocated for things that needed to be spoken about at the time and, unfortunately, still need to be spoken about today. Yeah, um, very much so. So that there are actually a multitude of things that connect these two albums. You'll have to wait till next week to find out exactly what they all are. But for now, your research is It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back by Public Enemy and Straight Outta Compton by NWA. Go and listen to them because that's what we're going to be going through over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, boy. <laughs> oh, my God. That's staying in. I mean, wow. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Ali G. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear uh, right so as ever kevin what humorous ways have you got to encourage people to keep in touch with us this week so if you are um a fan of criticizing scouse accents in line of duty you may want to try twitter um you can find our twitter account on at clash album you may also uh, find us on Instagram, which I don't have a line for because, as uh, Tim has alluded to, we don't understand Instagram. Photographs. <laughs> so uh, you'll find us at Clash Album. Or, again, if you if you are resolutely old school, then you can try us via the old school email, albumclash at gmail.com. We are very much pro-email. We understand words. So emails. Yes. Good. Letters good. Picture bad. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, great. So uh, as I always say, please get in touch. 
subscribe to us on whichever platform it is you use to listen to us. Leave a rating. As we've said before, leave a five-star rating, but slag us off in that five-star rating. Call us a bunch of pricks. We don't care. You know, we can take it. We're all about the stars. Exactly. Genuinely, though, really appreciate you listening. Really appreciate you getting involved. And we look forward to seeing you back next week. Well, as I've said before, we won't see you. It's It's an audio format. You know what I mean. That's your lot. We'll see you next time. I've been Tim. I've been Kev. Tara now. Take care. Tara, take care.